Begin driving. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Welcome to Noam on the Move. A podcast looking at how transportation evolved throughout the years and how disruptive technologies will continue to transform it. Here's your host, Noam Metal. You have reached your destination. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Gnome on the Move. I'm thrilled to have Vince Valdez with us today. Uh, Vince has spent over two decades in the public transportation space, uh, formally coming from the FDA, where he was an associate administrator for the Office of Research, Demonstration, and Innovation, uh, and really has been at the forefront of leading uh, new innovation within the federal government and the, the Federal Transit Authority specifically. And I got to experience that firsthand. Uh, but recently, actually, he crossed over from the federal to the local side and is now uh, serving as the executive director of the Southwestern Pennsylvania Commission, uh, which is in charge of uh, developing plans and programs for transportation, economic development, and, and other local government uh, assistance programs. So I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you, Vince, for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me today, Noam. I'm uh, very excited to be here and to uh, have a great conversation with you. So Vince, before we dive into uh, some of these topics today, and I think for the listeners as well, in some of our previous conversations, we've talked about some of these historical monumental achievements and transportations uh, that have come about, and also looking at the future, some of the new innovation that's coming, uh, and why we are and aren't able to achieve it. But before getting into all of that, when you dive a little deeper into the micro, right? Transportation is not this buzzword or at a high level. It affects every single one of us on a, on a personal level. So bring it down to that personal level for me. How, does, how is mobility uh, related to your inner circle and your family and maybe impacted you uh, over your, your, your personal life? It's a great question. And I think you're, you're spot on when you say that transportation, particularly the word mobility is what I prefer to use, is really kind of a very personal journey for folks. And, and again, that's not a pun at all. You know, for me, as you know, and we've discussed it in the past, I'm originally from New York City. And so I was raised with this perspective, this ethos, if you will, for mobility, for getting around what was my town, my backyard. And it was all important to every aspect of life, whether you're going to a doctor's appointment, whether you're trying to get to a job or job training or an educational opportunity. I grew up with the very, very sharp you know, focus on the uh, idea that mobility was your ride to life. It was the way you got to do the things in life that you wanted to do. So from a very young age, I was very interested in the urban form. I was interested in cities. I actually wanted to be an architect at one point. And everyone said, well, you won't eat, you won't make money, so go be an engineer instead. But always had that real interest in urbanism, in community building, in what transportation does for community. And so kind of guided my career along those lines. From a very personal standpoint, and I, I could tell you a couple of stories, but from from a very personal perspective, Again, I tell you, I was in New York City as a young man, uh, as a child, and I watched as my father got older. We lived in a part of the Bronx that was not particularly well served by transit. My father got around New York City in his car, and as he got older, and he had a number of illnesses, including diabetes, which, as you know, affects your vision and your ability to drive. When he finally lost the ability to drive, I've seen that man cry under two circumstances, under two conditions. One was when my grandmother passed away and the other when he was no longer able to drive. And I think he realized that with the end of that aspect of mobility, 
his true independence was over. And I think that's something we all value. We, we value that independence. I think um, the COVID pandemic has really laid that out starkly for everyone. We can't travel. We can't go do the things that we want to do as easily as we did before. And so now we're all acutely aware of what not having that mobility does to the quality of our life. And so people with disabilities or older Americans who may not be as mobile as the rest of us uh, have been living that forever. And so now we're all aware, and I think it really does lay bare the issue of universal mobility and what that means uh, for people's lives. Speaking of universal mobility, it brings back to the point that I often uh, think about and, and touches on a personal level. Think about my son who's two years old, and I, I look at what is his future going to look like in terms of mobility, especially as he gets to that retirement age that you were talking about with your, your father? Are those same dilemmas going to be ones that he's facing in terms of how to get from point A to point B? Uh, or are these new advancements of autonomous vehicles or other mobility advance that we're, we're, we'll be discussing today, will they make it commonplace and commoditize that uh, access point from point A to point B for him? I, I hope the latter, really. Uh, but that's something that I, I often think about. It just stresses the importance of mobility in our day-to-day -day life. Well, and I really like your perspective. I've said the same thing in, in other venues that, if anything, the technologies that we're seeing evolving right now that, uh, that are emerging in our society really do commoditize transportation. They really do make mobility more of a commodity than it was perhaps in the past. And the question then becomes, and and you know, I've introduced the idea of a traveler's bill of rights because it is so essential to your basic needs, to your basic life, like clean water, like electricity. Do those become more of uh, a right as opposed to just a commodity? Or maybe it's a little bit of both. But we do have to think about transportation in very different ways. We have to think about mobility in very different ways, especially, I think, given the fact that these technologies are not by any means cheap. And so as we deploy them, as we think about using them in our society, that's a huge investment on the public side. Also becomes a question is of how do you perhaps provide that access to people who may not have the means of being able to pay for it directly. We value mobility in our society because again, it's a way of getting people to all the things that we need in our society. And so we have to think more fully, um, I'd say from a social standpoint, as to what the mobility is valued at and how we think about providing that accessibility to everyone in the, in the society. That's a great uh, segue, I guess, into a question I wanted to get into with you, which we've talked about mm -hmm. uh, investments and monumental achievements in the past. And uh, often we don't talk about this enough. And part of this podcast really is about that of looking at what we've achieved in the past, of course, relating to, to transportation. And how does that tell a story about what we're able to achieve or not achieve in the future? So let's talk about some of these major successes and, and achievements. Uh, in, in the past, we think of something like the transcontinental railway or the freeway system uh, that we built. That took some major investment and, and decisions at the political level that you know, to your point on your father that enabled to have accessibility on the road that he was traveling uh, until that license was taken away. That freeway was what enabled him to have that access to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it, it seemed like uh, we're, 
we're at a spot that we're just not able to get over the hump uh, for that next big innovation, next big leap uh, in terms of some of these new mobility solutions that we're talking about. It's mainly incremental types of step. And what we're looking for is really a leap forward, uh, something that's transformative. Would you agree with that, that we're struggling to get there? And and why do you think that is? I do agree with that. I think that you know, the United States in the past has been very much on the cutting edge of transportation innovation, whether you go back to even the days of the early federal country, George Washington investing in the canal system and the uh, that we see pieces of still in Washington, D.C., and then later on the, the transcontinental railroad that you mentioned, um, again, a national scale investment. And then later on, the highway system, which, you know, by my lights, because I'm an older fellow, was only recently completed, but that really was the expression of a national will. All three of those innovations, all three of those systems were the expression of a willingness by our government and by the people who were funding that government to invest in something that would help the fabric of the country. I think we're at a point now where we don't necessarily even agree as to what is worth investing in. And that's problematic for large systems, for uh, large investments like, say, you know, Hyperloop or, or whatever the next innovation is going to be. There has to be a national understanding uh, of what the technology can actually do for you. There has to be a political will to define what the objectives of that system are going to be. And there has to be a willingness on the part of the citizenry of the electorate to be able to say, okay, by investing in this, by providing my piece of the investment, and you, you can argue it's taxes or whatever, that it will do something for me personally and for my community and for my society and for my country. I don't know that we're having that conversation at that level nowadays. I don't think we have had the ability to have anyone who can gel that for us. And and that's a very important thing for the for the vibrancy and the the sustainability of any country. And I definitely want to see that discussion picked up soon, as soon as possible. So you're in a unique position when you've been on both the federal and now you're you're kind of moved into the local uh, side of things. And where do you think this transformation starts? Does it start at the local level and the community? Or really, is this more about policies that come up from the federal government and trickle down? Ah, great. So I'll pull out my crystal ball here. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure where it starts. I know personally for me, and, and you mentioned that I've I've crossed over from the federal to the local. And if you know my background, I had previously worked as a planner for Washington, D.C. So I've crossed over a couple of times. You know, as I become older, as I get further in my career, I realize that there is a lot of satisfaction in the local implementation of projects, of actually seeing things get built, of seeing satisfied travelers who are having their needs met. And so that's why I made this transition. I had a great time and I made some wonderful friends. And uh, I think we've accomplished a lot of things at the federal level. I wanted to take whatever I had learned and and apply it at the local level. Now, directly to your question, does the change start at the local level? I think yes. I think the federal government is in a position to be able to support innovations at the local level, to be able to help the expression of local need. 
and objectives as defined in communities. For example, I think that inevitably automation is coming our way in one way or another. I think that the technology is proceeding and developing at a pace that we can't even imagine and that we will see uh, ultimately automated vehicles of some sort on our streets and on our roads and in our communities uh, within a few years. Uh, I won't say four or five, I won't say 10, but I believe we will all see it soon. The issue is going to be that we are going to see different expressions of automation depending on the needs of that community. In a New York City, for example, I doubt we'll see a lot of single occupancy vehicles that are automated that are commuting in from Hartford, Connecticut, or wherever it is. I think we will see automation expressed as public transportation. In other communities, uh, and you know, I'm living in a region now that has good representation of rural communities, we may see a different application. It may not make sense to have the same level of public transportation automated in those areas that are more rural. It may make sense there to have car share systems or individual owners of automated vehicles, again, depending on what the price point's going to be. But what I'm saying is that ultimately, the manifestation of automation will be guided by local needs and local wants and the agreement of the community that it's geared to as to how that technology is going to be implemented. And so we need to be prepared at the federal level for that manifold expression of automation, that there's not a one-size-fits-all. We at the federal level, when I was there, and I say we, I'm no longer there, but certainly we will be at the federal level responsible for and monitoring safety. We will want to make sure that there is interoperability so that there are not proprietary solutions applied across the country that don't coordinate or speak to each other. We will want to protect things like uh, people's privacy. And those are certainly federal roles. But the ultimate way AV rolls out at a local level will be a local decision, I believe. That's really interesting. So I want to touch on something you mentioned there. You mentioned transit as a kind of one of the examples of how it's being manifested in different ways. And mm-hmm. Let's talk about transit for a second. When you look in the past, transit emerged as something that enabled the communities uh, and different neighborhoods and connected the the city. And the transit system was at the core of that, how you interacted within your uh, uh, urban environment. And COVID really accentuated this a little bit, the disparity of the socioeconomic perspective of it, of who relies on these transit systems to move within their uh, community. And, and those that it may be a luxury for them and they may choose it, but they may also have other modes or personal vehicle as well. And so as we start thinking about uh, this fabric across the U.S. And, and thinking of COVID and what it's, it's brought to, to light, we're starting to see that the models of funding these transit systems is at risk or at least at question. And all the struggles that we're seeing now with various transit systems across the U.S. and the funding gaps Is this a sustainable model in your mind where the federal and local governments have a heavy hand in funding and subsidizing this form of transportation? Or are we going to need to shift into different and innovative and new models that uh, may make it more economically viable? Or or maybe I'm completely thinking about this in in the wrong way where we really should be thinking about like a basic service just the way we think about 
healthcare or a public good that just is funded by the government as a basic service. You're talking about a political paradigm shift and um, transit is one of my favorite topics. So I love speaking about it and I could speak to you for hours about it, but I, I will also acknowledge that these are my own theories and not necessarily what will take hold or, you know, what, you know, won't even de design or define, I should say, the, the zeitgeist in, in the country. However, traditionally, transit, I think, was an instrument of its locality. Again, similar to what I think AV will be, I think transit was certainly representative of the communities in which it grew up for very specific reasons, both geared to the physical location and the form of the, the community, as well as the times. Economically, at one time, uh, certainly before automobiles and when cities were starting to grow in this country, there were not widely distributed automobiles. The horse was no longer a viable form of urban transportation for a number of hygiene reasons and other reasons. And so transit filled that niche. I used to have a, a very a genius of an urban planning professor uh, at Columbia who said that the ideal human habitation, the ideal human community was the medieval city. And he said, aside from health and hygiene, the reason was because you could walk across a medieval city in 20 minutes. You could get anywhere from your home to the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker at, in 20 minutes. And that was the span of your city, the span of your community, and you knew everybody. As cities grew, that 20-minute walk, that 15-minute walk was no longer viable, even though we do have neighborhoods. Um, that was something that kind of grew beyond the pale. And so transit filled that need to be able to get across Chicago or New York or even smaller communities. I mean, at one time, we had an amazing streetcar network in this country that I was told, and there was a story I, I heard a long time ago as a student, that you could travel from New York City to Boston on streetcars for the price of a nickel, taking free transfers all the way up the coast, up the East Coast. Now, it would take you all day, but you could do it. That's how interconnected our network was. Those days are gone. The car supplanted that, and we're living with the results. My take is that public transportation is going to have to change its model, its service model, in order to be responsive to the modern world, modern needs, modern community. The basic transit model is probably easily 75 years old. And while I'm a huge supporter of it, I think there is room for innovation in how we provide transit. And now you start talking about perhaps a redefinition of what transit is in this country, a redefinition of what good service is, perhaps even changing the metrics by which we measure the effectiveness of transit, which right now is held to ridership. Whereas, you know, I could argue that perhaps the metric should be mobility and your ability to access different aspects of your community and society. And that transit is arguably the best way of doing that in an efficient thoughtful, environmentally sound, and socially equitable way. But again, that's a larger political discussion that we need to have in order to be able to agree with that definition, in order to, to all agree that it's worth the investment and it's worth that paradigm shift. It's worth helping transit come to that paradigm shift. So I guess I want to uh, dig even deeper on this one. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, almost 
everything in the mobility space gets uh, politicized at some level, uh, of course. But if you drill down deeper, right, back to that personal level, and you get to the nitty gritty of it, and you start thinking about rural communities, think about lower uh, socioeconomic. And I was reading a New York Times out article about this recently. Uh, with COVID cuts through transit systems, there are certain communities that are on the lower income side within uh, certain cities that are suddenly finding uh, themselves in uh, food deserts that they used to rely on transit to, you know, take a 15 minute ride, get their food and come back. Suddenly that's taking an hour, an hour and a half because some of those lines have been uh, cut and no longer exist. So so that kind of brings it home to the real issue. Uh, and when we think about, you know, and this is, of course, your personal views and opinion on it. When you look at that economic benefit, if you will, or connecting the points between uh, various communities, is should we focus our attention on that as a metric of success of how well we allow mobility of various communities uh, and and by their ability to access places they want to go? Uh, is that maybe a, a different purview that we should have for it? Look at transit as it's practiced or as it's made available in our country, in, in the U.S., right? First of all, in different panels, I've actually stepped up to the uh, pulpit or whatever, the stage, and, and asked the audience, is transit a social service? Is transit a business? Is transit a utility? Is transit a commodity? And invariably, the answer is yes. It's all those things. We ask of transit to promote social equity. We ask of transit to save the environment. We ask transit to provide economic development in wherever it's being used. And we don't ask that of any other mode. Do we ask that of the airlines? Do we ask that of railroads? Each other mode has its own, I think, area of expertise and area of influence in our society. We ask a lot of transit. And so because we ask so much of transit, we should be investing commensurately in transit because we are using transit to serve food deserts. And we're asking transit to provide rides for essential workers. And we're asking transit to, by the way, you need to electrify so that you, we don't have you know, environmental impacts from, from transportation, notwithstanding that we've never really looked at other modes in the same way. And so- that's why I say, if we are asking so much of transit and we're not measuring anything that transit does for us other than ridership, we're doing transit a disservice. Let us look at transit for what it does to economic revitalization or economic development in a given region. Let's look at what it does for equitable accessibility and for that mobility that we all need, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, that we all depend on, as you pointed out, food deserts or access to education or work programs or all the things that all aspects of our society really need are provided by transit. So let's measure those metrics. Let's measure those things that we value and ask of transit and then fund it commensurately with that. We value that mobility. So let me push back a bit on that point. I mean, I sure. wholeheartedly agree around tracking those metrics, but specifically, do we really have that data right now available to us? And and even if we do, do we have the right tools and analytical capabilities to do it? Are, are we there yet? 
I, I think we're there. I'm, I'm an engineer as well as a planner, right? And so I'm, I'm, as a planner, I have to think about outcomes. And that's what I'm speaking about now. As an engineer, I am confident that the technologies are there to be able to do that. You know, I, for one, think, again, we're talking about automation. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about predictive analytics. We're talking about terms of art that are with us presently that we just need to focus on and be able to apply correctly to measure the right outcomes, the right impacts in our transportation system. Sure. Do we need to collect more data? Absolutely. Do we need to apply these technologies in a more expansive, more progressive way? Absolutely. But that also points to that investment that I was talking about earlier and the willingness to say, we've got these tools, let's apply them in this environment and in this context so that we can start really getting at the outcomes that as a society we care about. Hey, I, I, from a regional standpoint, you know, I look at, you know, I'm right now living in the Pittsburgh area and um, I'm responsible for 10 counties, many of which are rural. And I look at, again, the idea that on the federal highway side, we measure level of service. On the federal transit side, we measure ridership. And there's no kind of Rosetta Stone that kind of amalgamates that or brings those together in terms of measuring mobility. If we could develop a national mobility index, a national mobility measure, metric, that's what we want. At the end of the day, that's what we want. We want mobility. We're really not so concerned about miles of lanes that are laid or miles of track that are laid or the ridership and the level of service that come from that, we're interested in the individual mobility, or at least that's what the average person cares about. That's what they want. They want to get to the grocery store. They want to be able to get to whatever it is that they're looking to get to in a way that serves their needs in real time. You know, whether that's a, a financial need, whether that's, you know, or constraint, whether that's a time constraint, whether that's a safety or comfort constraint. I think those things are all within our grasp now with the capabilities that the technology offers. Yes. And I love the concept of a, a national mobility index. I think you're spot on on our need for consolidation and speaking the same language uh, in order for us to really start measuring our results in a way that we can benchmark against each other. I can say that, you know, and again, in, in, in my concept of, uh, you know, kind of a future, you know, state of transportation, and particularly at the federal level, I would love to see someday a federal mobility administration that is concerned about multimodalism and interconnectedness and a system of systems and thinking about all of the assets in terms of what they mean to the individual traveler. I hope to see that day come as well. Amen, I'll say to that. So on a final note, maybe, um, part of what we talked about with data uh, and talking about technologies that ha and solutions that, that get us there on kind of finding solutions, whether it's artificial intelligence or other uh, technology-based solutions, often are being driven by the private sector. And that's where a lot of the innovation is happening. Uh, but you obviously need the public sector as a as a partner. And, and as someone that spent his career in the public sector, what advice would you give to companies on how they can efficiently engage with the government? And and that's a constant frustration, right? You, you'll hear uh, government doesn't move fast enough. 
uh, hard time with collaborating with the private sector. What's the secret recipe for a happy marriage there? <laughs> happy marriage. I think as with real happy marriages, it's understanding the ground truth, understanding where the other partner is standing, what their needs are, what their constraints are, what their mission or what their goals are. You know, again, having served in the federal space and very proudly served for, for 20 years, I understand that there's a federal role that ensures that, again, we're making the right decisions, we're making the right investments, that there's safety considered in this, that there's equity considered in this. And so for the private sector to understand you know, where the federal partners are standing on these issues is very important as you go into the negotiations or the, the conversations. Where I would ask my federal brothers and sisters to really think about their role is to try to walk in the moccasins of the private sector as well, to try to understand where they're coming from, that they have certain you know, baseline requirements, certain needs. There's an interest in, you know, obviously, innovation. There's, of course, the profit factor going into this. And that's not a bad thing. That's part of what you know, makes this country so vibrant, is that you can have that dynamism that exists in those very kind of odd couple partnerships. But understanding where each is coming from is super important. Certainly when I was at the federal level, I always tried to, again, consider where my external private sector partners were coming from and accommodate that or at least factor that into my thinking as I was trying to exercise my program and, and think about how we could partner together. You know, it reminds me, I had a conversation once with Pete Ron. Um, he mentioned something that stuck with me. And uh, Pete Ron, the former director of Maryland uh, DOT, he mentioned that uh, I often found this disconnect between the private sector would come and talk about dollars and revenue and they talk about profits, of course, which is core to private sector business. But the currency that he was thinking about is really uh, for a public agency was public opinion. <laughs> and so he kind of drew this Venn diagram uh, and, and looked at where that happy marriage is right in between the two uh, circles where the Venn meets of where the, the private sector and the company is able to make a profit and has revenue opportunities, but the public opinion is served, the, 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 the needs of the public agency is served in terms of serving the community. And that's where there was efficient collaboration uh, that would happen. And, and really it was about speaking the, the same language. I, I found that very insightful because a lot of times you'll see this disconnect, really two sides speaking different languages and where you find efficiency and product projects that move forward is where those uh, that happy marriage is uh, in between. Absolutely, and, and and I like that analogy or that model of using a Venn diagram. There will be disparate views. There have to be, perforce, right? But if you understand that there is a commonality at the core, and you define what that commonality is, then you're you're in a good position, both on the private and the public side. Well, Vince, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation and, and thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate the chance to speak with you and best of luck. I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, next time we can get together in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to that and hopefully sooner rather than later. All right. Amen. Thank you, Vince. All right. Take care now.